2 or 3 o'clock in Sao Paulo, and it is 9 a.m. in California. Ladies and gentlemen, if you hear my voice, if you hear the strumming of my guitar, you can rest assured you are tuned into very positive, regenerative vibrations. You are listening to Re and Co Radio. You're listening to Re and Co Radio, and today we will be talking about food systems and food culture. The theme for today is regenerate and co nourish. And today on the panel, we've got good friends actually some new some old we have charles michelle which in my in my opinion is a is a food wizard and of course sometimes he calls himself a muse, uh, a food anthropologist sometimes he considers himself a, an academic and an educator but you will not hear him saying that he's a chef and we're going to ask him a little bit about that today charles am i am i spot on or not yet <laughs> yes, sir. I think the, the 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 title I've decided stepping fully is educator and activist um, around the food topics, and yeah. And, but I come from the the food technique um, and, and and the chef world, but uh, now exploring deeper layers of our food system. That's lovely. Charles is a magician. Don't let him state otherwise. We also have Mark Buckley, an incredibly, an incredibly well-connected, accomplished, and knowledgeable person about regeneration. I don't know, Amanda, you excited to have Mark on on stage with us today? <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm so excited for this conversation in general. Uh, food touches, I'd say, everything. Um, so excited to see where this conversation opens into and. Um, yeah, I hope to surprise our listeners and surprise everyone here on stage. Oh, man, I'm super excited. And we also have Nikola Grichka, um, also a Latin American, Eastern European, like myself. She is, is Polish-Brazilian. I am Lithuanian-Colombian, so practically we're a little bit of the same, no, Niki? Um, but the curious thing about Nicola and the way I met her is through the, through the social gastro gastronomy movement. And uh, really, if we start thinking about the most important decision that we can take as human beings to pivot humanity, it is by being a little bit more considerate of our mouths. And Nikki, that's what you're working on. Is that right? Right on. And how can we bring social back to the center of food? <laughs> Thank you, Jurgis and Amanda, for holding the space. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get the show on the road. I'm super excited. I'm super, super excited. So I poked in the sound check uh, earlier on. I said that I'd have a, a question. I said that I'd have a question that I would not reveal before we came on air. And the reason that that question for me encapsulates this conversation is because we're talking about fixing food systems in the traditional manner. And the question is, if Elon Musk gave away his, the six billion, or I don't know how many billion he was offering to the World Food Program, would it really change anything or it, would it be just more of the same? So let's open with that question. What do you make of it? Um, I don't want to go first on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could lay a little bed there. So one quote that's really struck me recently is uh, this quote by Chico Mendes, who says that environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. And I think industrial agriculture and so much of industrialization has weathered <laughs> the world. Know, and, and main streets and rural uh, rural towns are being stripped away um, by over-industrialization. And it's much more complex than thinking of first world and third world, which are just such old, old <laughs> ways of thinking about the world. But there's this class struggle everywhere. And um, yeah, curious how that comes up. You know, as we talk about regenerative agriculture, often the thought is about carbon sequestration, which I'm very excited about. And if we just focus on carbon, we could miss the larger plot here. So curious what that evokes and folks. It, it invokes a song. 
I want to write a song about it. <laughs> I want to write a song about <laughs> about that quote. Could you could you run it by me, woman? If if it's if if it has no social, if food if food change has no social depth, well then it's just gardening. Is it just gardening? <laughs> <laughs> if environmentalism is without class struggle, then it's just gardening. It's just gardening. It's just gardening. But actually, Amanda, as 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 one of the of the heads of the regenerative movement and at the helm of the Buck, Buckminster Fuller Institute, you know, encouraging people to garden is not such a bad idea. Am I right? Am I wrong? <laughs> no, gardening is really wonderful. It's really great. It's part of the bigger picture for sure. Um, and also, we need to make sure that we're really really questioning the underlying system. Otherwise, we're going to just continue to have symptoms and we're just putting band-aids over bullet holes. And, you know, we need to we need to look at the root. And so much of that is is othering and a broken, you know, late stage capitalism that is um, causing all of these things. Uh, to go back and answer your question, right before the, the COP26, Jeff Bezos, I think it was, gave $100 million to the World Central Kitchen, more specifically to Jose Andrea. Um, I, did, I honestly believe that the money can help if it's done and put and placed in the right right models, the right systems, if we're giving fossil fuel subsidies or supporting farm bills or industrial ag, absolutely not. But if that money is given to people who know how our complex food systems work and make sure those people with the wisdom of permaculture, of regeneration, and restoration and those people on the ground who are doing the work and have that experience receive the money um, that with not very much we can reach critical mass and, and do a lot of good with that where I don't have a lot of faith in is the past examples of how <laughs> Some of these international organizations have divided the money in the past. It's been not so wonderful. Yeah, not so wonderful at all. Um, I mean, often, often, if, if you look at bureaucracy and the way some certain expenses become inflated. There was a person uh, who I won't, I, I, I want to, I don't want to mention out of anonymity, but a person who works running refugee camps, and they say how some, you know, like basic grain, the cost, the price on the on the on paper, it becomes so elevated and inflated, and infrastructure and all the things, it just sounds like a great idea, you know, just to you know to, to trickle down more money through the infrastructure, bureaucratic infrastructure of um, food enslavement. I mean, I'm allowing myself to say that if we don't entitle people to grow or to at least be uh, food emancipated, then then like, what are we doing with them by putting money into that system? But that's just me overstepping my boundaries. I admit entirely that I have no clue what I'm talking about. I'm just a foolish musician. And I know that Charles and Nicola really can can give us much a much better uh, insight into into the way that that a structured, um, you know, feeding of human beings or, or, or you know, managing food uh, systems uh, is not always perfect. Yeah, I want to jump in on that question. Very important. And while I think that it is a noble endeavor to address Ur the urgency around hunger, right? One in six human beings today is either suffering from not having 
enough nutrients or enough quantity of food um, or malnourished, right? And um, and it is urgent to address that. But as Amanda very well said, right, we're, we're just putting band-aids on bullet holes. And what is the big vision? I feel like, what if we invest those six billion into a big vision that, you know, funds systemic change and empowers community on the ground to, you know, to re-own their agency through their own ancestral seeds and ancestral culinary process, processes and with ways that are resilient uh, to climate uh, to climate change um, in terms of agricultural practices. And, and I feel that we're, you know, we're just um, actually eventually just funding the old model um, by putting, you know, a certain type of, of humanitarian aid that that doesn't empower, that actually disempowers community and their communities and their, um, yeah, their their agency uh, over over their future. So yeah, that's what I went, wanted to say about about that prompt, Yorgis. So there's a little bit of agreement, Nikki. What do you think? <laughs> I think stimulated by Mark um, and his comment about it depends where the money goes, right? Because um, it's very much that if it goes to what Charles was saying, just feeding into the system, it's going to be more of the same. So if it goes into those, but actually holding the system in place, saying that they're not, but but actually thrive of the old systems. So if it, if we can channel money as a tool, because that's just a tool, um, where we can deconstruct, where we can decolonize food, we can reinvent, rethink, um, and really wisely said as well, directly to the community. Those that hold the innovations, those know that's the most important element to them. People with lived experiences and not uh, white savior um, effect of trying to do everything top down and having a full solution for and doing for, but actually doing with and empowering those that hold the solutions. It's lovely to think, I, I, I think it's a chicken and the egg kind of problem. Um, and a friend of mine had a really beautiful explanation to how, or the reason, had a very beautiful explanation as to how, why we're having so much difficulty with system change. And it's because there usually is a culture, a human set of behaviors and beliefs that precedes any big institution. So she calls this an, an institutional push. So whereas an institutional push is the desire to put in kind of like systems, frameworks, prescriptive and normative kind of uh, scaffolding, uh, an institutional thing is very much based in passing on things orally. It's very much about, you know, things just growing naturally, organically. And, um, and I'm really glad we're talking about regeneration and the re kind of implying that these are things that we used to know. These are things that we used to do before. So let me ask you a little bit about the people who should be on the front line when we're talking about co-nourishment, feeding the world in a regenerative way. Who's going to jump in? So regeneration is... <clears throat> not just a buzzword for all of those of you who are thinking wow i've heard that a lot lately uh, it's also not hype it's something that has been around for a long time uh, one of our first wonderful scientists uh, in the world uh, actually wrote about it drew about it and that's leonardo da vinci observed it this continual renewal as he called it the renewal of leaves and trees plants feathers on birds and <clears throat> he concluded that the earth as a whole is alive and very much uh, as we say today in, in the Gaia theory that it's all about this regeneration and it's really a model of how the world has always worked and we've kind of disconnected from that thought and, and um, so just just in the past um, four years, I've been asked to speak quite a bit on regeneration. And everybody thinks that I'm going to talk about regenerative agriculture, but there's so much more to regeneration. 
Amanda, did you happen to work at all on Paul Hawkins' new book with him on regeneration? It was a book that we talked about doing actually before Drawdown. So uh-huh. that way, yes, from, from a long, long time ago. Um, but yeah, this this newer one tells a lot of stories from folks around the world. Nice. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of exciting things in there. And it, it brings to fore, you know, similar to Leonardo da Vinci, Buckminster Fuller also talked about regeneration as the the eternal state, he called it the eternally regenerative universe. Um, that is that is the base state of the world and the universe around us. Um, and I think that comes through in the stories that Paul and a whole team of folks collected for, for the book Regeneration. I'm, I'm uh, kind of this big fan of, of uh, systems thinking, Gaia theory, regeneration, and uh, I'm a student of Fritholf Capra. Matter of fact, my book on mm-hmm. on food called Menu B is uh, has a section from Fritholf Capra in it. And, and really what he's observed as um, a systems scientist or someone who talks about the systems view of life and how it's in, in all parts of of life that regeneration or regenerative nature is can be seen at all fundamentals of life it is the very fundamental level of all life and simplest organism cells and um, that they're self-organizing that they're self-generating and that you know, every part of a cellular network helps to either transform or replace other parts so that they're continually regenerating themselves. And one thing during this pandemic and during this crazy times we've experienced in the last two, two years here is that our human health, us as individuals, homo sapiens, uh, our health is a microcosmos of the biome or the microcosmos around us. So how does the body look like and feel like where we're at, where we're living? Is it healthy and and how is that affecting our health? And so absolutely at every part uh, of life, I really think it's so vital to not only get this regenerative education to realize that's how the world has always worked and how we've emerged, but also how can we do it autonomously in, in, in our daily lives and our actions? How do we interact with the world in a regenerative way that's almost <laughs> autonomous? It's a no-brainer. It's just that's that's how it is. It's a better system. It's a yeah. better system. That's a better system. One- so just one visual I came up with thinking that same question, which I I roll over in my mind and soul quite a bit, is what would it look like if, if every footstep we left erupted in wildflowers or something akin to that kind of life? You know, how, how can we leave this wake of life that then creates more life that then creates more life? And how can we have, you know, similar to this... Big fear I have, and many have, of of runaway climate change. How can we spark runaway regeneration? Well, I know that there are people right here on the panel who will agree if you want to spark a movement, well, you can always choose the path to feed. Right, right, right. Um, Absolutely. I love that visual, Amanda, that uh, everywhere you step, that there's just this this life and uh, that comes out, this new growth, this interaction. What, what we've seen as well and, and um, in our world is that when we we block off things in nations or cordon off them with borders or walls and say, okay, we're doing this for conservation or restoration. We want to create a park. And there's really no 
movement or activity within that area of, of land or space is that we still get floods and droughts and desertification. We still have the fires and the death and that. Um, but we need to interact with all other organisms and species and have that movement and, and to create that regeneration, to have a, a healthy ecosystem. It's not about hiding on one corner of this planet from someone else or from a virus. It's, it's about having this regeneration, which is an ecological phenomenon. It's the most innovatest, innovative and fastest moving way to heal our planet, to reach that critical mass, to solve a lot of these problems that we're, we're seeing with climate change and soil degradation and issues with desertification and, and on and on. I want to pick up on the eco because I think that's exactly the way forward where everyone plays a, a role and we've come to a point where we are in this ego system and so how can we step away from that, leave the ego, the agendas at the door and actually go into this ecosystem where everyone finds their, their place um, otherwise it's just um, like Amanda was saying putting band-aids on, on symptoms it's not actually looking at the root and um, something that um, Mark mentioned that made me think now is um, that is how the world has always worked um, and so for me one of the root causes actually is disconnect so we are disconnected to ourselves like even our feelings our body what we put into our body. We're disconnected to, to people. We're disconnected to our society, to people around us, to our communities. And we're disconnected from the planet. And so from this disconnect, um, a lot of problems and challenges have emerged. So I do think that, that a key element is to reconnect and embrace that interconnectivity as well that, that already came up here and not fight for interconnectivity, the interdependence, but embrace it, love it, and, and step into it. You know, that's absolutely lovely. You know, the way, the idea that we can reconnect through something other than the mind is something that actually my very good friend, Charles Michel, lay bare one evening when we were having dinner with our kids, with my kids. Well, now they're Charles' kids as well because he's fed them. But he was explaining to them something really beautiful. He was telling the kids, he was saying, hey, kids, eh, think of the food you're putting in your mouth. Think of the food you're putting in your mouth, where it's coming from. And I was thinking, because we're almost at the bottom of the hour, and we always like to do something artistic, something co-created, Charles, could you guide us through one of those fascinatingly a food erotic meditation, guided meditations of yours, where you actually bring people into consciousness what they are doing every time they do what is, what is known in layman's terms as eating. Mm. So I want you to just be aware of the stream of information that's coming through your senses right now. Where are you sitting? Is there any smell in the air? Right? If you have your eyes open, it's like a television, right? Like an immersive television of sorts. All of that information is created in your mind and your body with electric pulses flowing through your muscles and nervous system. Now let's go back on that electric pulse, back a few million kilometers. Where does that come from? That energy that is in your body was, you know, absorbed from the food that you, that you were eating yesterday or today, the sugar that you put in your coffee eventually, or the honey. And that honey that you put in your coffee earlier kind of, you know, was, was kind of osmosed somehow from your gut into your bloodstream. And where did that energy, that condensed form of energy that is in the honey come from? It came from the jar that 
at some point was in a hive. And that hive had a few tens of thousands of soldiers, little bees, pollinated an ecosystem, cross-pollinating. And the, and the, the sub-product of that pollination was, was the honey that is fueling your consciousness right now. But where did that nectar come from? That nectar came from that plant synthesizing sunlight, CO2, water and nutrients from the soil. And, and where did that sunlight come from, right? That energy, that, the, the, the rawest form of energy that condensed into honey, condensed into your coffee, condensed into your belly and into your current consciousness. That photon, those photons that condense into sugars, actually traveled 150 million kilometers from our sun star that we're orbiting right now at 220 kilometers per second. And that star gives everything that is food on this planet, everything that is life. We are very much solar powered. We are solar fueled. And as Carl Sagan would say, we are suspended in the sunbeam. And that sunbeam provides massive amounts of energy to this planet, and most of it is unused by humans. Now, think about co-nourishment as beyond speciesism, beyond human supremacy over nature. And let's think about how we can facilitate eventually as architects of life that we can be, that we can become, that we somehow already are architects of life how can we manage that energy, immense amount of energy, to cool down the planet, to bring down some carbon of the atmosphere by co-nourishing not only humans, as is often thought of in our modern systems, but rather all life, mycelium, bacteria, microbes, animals, plants, all of it, plankton, seaweed, all of these things condensed energy from the sun in the most magical of processes together with carbon which is the building block of life and water which is the matrix of life and that is food that is the meaning of it if you really think about it so as your body kind of transmutes this solar energy intermingling with earth systems to give rise to your consciousness and our shared consciousness through this thin voice line and music line through the waves connected at the speed of light almost through this app through this technology that we feed in our pockets and how can we better co-nourish each other as part of life this magical web so beautiful all you needed to say my friend is that we are beings of light we are simply manifestations of structured photons or something like that yeah if it sounded stupid it's just cause the musician opened his mouth to do something other than sing i don't know i love i love that kind of idea <laughs> It reminds me, shocker, of a Buckminster Fuller quote um, where he says, fire is the sun unwinding from the tree's log. And so I'm wondering, Charles, what you think of something like food is the sun unwinding from... The earth's love, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I invite everyone to play with that if you'd like. So the original quote is, fire is the sun unwinding from the tree's log. Maybe it's taste. Taste is the sun unwinding from the food you eat. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who will solve the riddle that we have at hand? I think that Charles really, <clears throat> with his meditation, where he also spoke about the honey and, and, and food as energy, really, 
hit the nail on the head, so so to say. Most of us have forgotten that the basic energy source of life is food, or a caloric uh, unit, which is a calorie as a measurement of energy. Now, I don't want you to go out and count calories. As a matter of fact, I think that's negative. But that's the world's, humanity's, most basic energy source. It regulates our body temperature. It keeps our motor running. It keeps our body temperature at 98.6. Everything else around us is not at 98.6. It's at room temperature, which is a lot different. And so we need that food. To drive our engines, to drive our bodies, and we've disconnected ourselves with that energy source. We've shifted towards fossil fuels. We've shifted towards things that require a lot of middleman, a lot of resources, and a lot of negativity. Whereas we could have something that is abundant and free, and always there. For our bodies, and I think that's that's interesting to touch upon because if if we understand that we've put the power or the onus on where our food comes from to someone else, it's up to the grocery store, it's up to the farmer, it's up to the retail establishment or the the gastronomy or the fast food place to provide us with our basic energy source for our body. That's kind of a negative thing. That's kind of a sad thing. No one would buy a car and not know where they're going to get their gas from. No one would buy a cell phone not know where they're going to charge the battery from. Why would you give the source of your energy, your body, why would you not know where that comes from? Why would you not take part in the creation of it or make sure that the system where that food comes from is pure, is not hurting the environment, not stealing the resources, not hurting our soils, not hurting our waterways, but nurturing and making humanity better and making our planet better? And I, we've talked that there is no silver bullet. We've also talked that there, we're putting band-aids over gunshot wounds. But there is, in some respects, a silver bullet, and that is food. If we fix how we produce, make, and create food, how we consume, and what goes into it, it's the biggest effect. To draw down our global warming, our greenhouse gas emissions, and more importantly than all of that, the human suffering that occurs around food. I want to build on that beautiful share with an image that I got given by、uh, an indigenous elder in Colombia, who said that the chagra, the garden. Right, the place where next to the village you grow your food is the umbilical cord that connects people, community, to the mother, to the earth. Right now, the model that we have created in order to benefit an illusion of infinite growth out of limited resources, which is, let's say, the modern economy, is based on the idea that instead of Us being connected through our bellies directly to the earth, we are actually connected to an IV perfusion straight into our bloodstream, and that is the supermarket that Mark was sharing. That is the food system, the you know the restaurant. It's it's all these things that actually these connect and these empower us from our ability, our divine given ability to feed from the earth. We've been. Disconnected from that wisdom in just a hundred years of technological evolution, and so in total agreement with what has been shared and what's moving in this room, 
I feel that food is actually, or growing food is actually the most revolutionary act. And it is a soft revolution. The revolution of food education, the revolution of, um, of, of putting food back at the center of our lives, an ontological awakening, a reshaping of what it means to be human through the humility of being part of nature and connecting with her humbly to get the nutrients that are widely in abundance for everyone to be fed. Even to, with today's food system, we're already producing much more food than is needed to feed everyone. So it's a problem of distribution, of management, and of maturity in our belief systems as a species. And hopefully we see the birth of, of this self-revolution that is having more connection to, to those roots, literal and figurative roots. It's amazing. It's amazing because the premise here, at least what I find underlying in all of this, is that you can't sell anything to people who don't need what you're selling. No, you can't sell nothing to people who don't need for the stuff you got on the shelves. And ironically enough, with music, we have a very similar situation. There is a guy by the last name of Lomax with which his grand, with his father, they recorded tens of thousands of recordings uh, back back at the beginning of the previous century when there were like when gramophones weighed half a ton and when it was very difficult to you know even access this technology and so he worked for the library of congress collecting musical cultural tradition and what he says is that the music was stolen from us all the music was stolen from human beings who were singing it who were singing at their work posts, who were singing at the fields, who were singing at the tables, who were singing uh, just to push time, to remember the story and the tradition of their people, the oral tradition. But once that, those, those songs made it onto the airwaves, people then got lazy and they said, well, why should I sing it where that guy, that guy there, he's singing it so much more beautiful. And again, who's gonna buy music which you can make at home? Who's gonna buy food when you can grow it on your own? I think, I think, I think, I think what we're coming. You at, hit, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. On a, you've hit on a pole almost, I would say. It's uh, it's amazing. What? Why do we need commercials or marketing of of food? Why do I need to know to buy the Brayburn apple to the Fiji apple or? this product or that it's food it's our energy source i don't i i think that that's gotten us down this whole another area that is almost a signal to humanity that says if it needs to be marketed if it's on tv if it's on the radio if we're talking about a specific product maybe maybe that's not the right way or the right food that we should be eating because there's some kind of commoditizing or marketization happening of our humanity's energy source, which should be a basic need. And there's this, this thing that when you mention that, that really comes up that I want to bring up. If you cheapen food, you cheapen life. And our food systems in many respects have been turned into commodities. We trade food as a commodity, potatoes and uh, sugar beets and sugar and on and on, corn. Um, and that's in essence a, a cheapening of food, which is a cheapening of life, but it can be applied to any product on earth. If you cheapen anything, any product that humans use, you're actually in essence cheapening life because there is a human or a resource involved in producing and making that, that product. There's a resource impact, a human impact, someone either not being paid a fair wage or not being allowed to go to school because they're producing a product at a cheaper rate so that it can be sold somewhere else or let me give you a 
a, a real rough example. In Australia, they produce a lot of, of cattle. In Brazil, they produce a lot of cattle, Argentina. And it's at the destruction of the environment. It's at the destruction of land. Uh, and then those products don't even really, for the most part, remain where they're produced. They're then shipped thousands of miles away to China or to Europe or to wherever else. So basically they're saying, please use our resources, leave your waste and your destruction and your environmental impact here. And then we're, we're going to sell that product as a commodity or even cheaper than what it costs us the natural capital or the true cost to produce. But then once that product is long gone, we suffer the consequences here in Australia, here in Brazil, in the rainforest. And so I, I would just say, we need to think about the true cost and the natural capital and the, and the fairness of that. And when we think of food, let's not cheapen food because then we cheapen life. It's the permanent conundrum. You know, when we try to give a price to all that's priceless and it was actually it was actually this guy called Oscar Wilde who said that a cynic is a person who knows the price of everything and the true doesn't know the true cost of anything. For me, it's like it's just a returning motif. You know, when you try to put everything in monetary standards, we lose perspective. We lose perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, we are 40 minutes into our chat on KPCR-FM. If you would like to join us, if you're listening to us on Instagram, please know that we will be live for another 20 minutes here on Reinco in the Clubhouse Room. We're going to open it up to questions in the next 18 minutes. May I ask our beautiful panel, are you having a good time? Ladies and gentlemen, you having a good time right here, listening to the beat, sharing all these ideas? Can I get a woohoo? Woohoo! Oh yes, woohoo! Woohoo! Can I get can I get an mm mm for nice, delicious, nourishing food? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love it when people kind of like have the opportunity to kind of express themselves and really create the space. Can I get three good, heartfelt mm-hmms just to get us in the mood? Sabroso. <laughs> Sabroso, yeah. Sabroso. Ay, qué rico, qué rico. Yes, 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 yes. Sabroso, sabroso. Sabroso is a word we have for delicious. Eh, Nikki, what, what word do you have for delicious in Brazil? Qué rico. Qué rico. Funny how similar all the life-giving sounds are of food and love language. It's amazing how we were just making all those noises and I just felt like all all my my being come to life from those sounds, you know? Like, mmm, so good, you know, immediately I get hungry. And it's funny how those sounds transcend language, man. It's absolutely amazing. And I can imagine our listeners down below also going like, ooh, my goodness, isn't that nice and stimulating? I know that it's stimulating me. But now, after a round of stimulation, let me ask... Ladies and gentlemen, beautiful panel, beautiful guests, beautiful friends, what else is missing in this conversation? I want to bring a point <laughs> to when I read Co-Nurse. It made me think and also link to Charles's comments um, to where nourishment starts. And it starts within, for humans, within the human body. <laughs> so for mothers, nourishing the child. I think it's so magic and uh, how our body just self-governs, like Mark was before and creates the nourishment that the child developing needs 
and when breathing is where nourishment continues. And so that is really the basics of where, where life starts. And I think it's just, you know, we also disconnected from that, how magical that is. And I think that's exactly our, our body being this perfect system of regeneration, of creating life. And, and that just goes on to, you know, our planet. Our planet is designed to do the exact same thing. Um, as part of this ecosystem. So I just, I think what was, what I wanted to bring into the conversation is the power of, of a body by itself, the power of a mother giving life um, through producing the milk that the child needs to even grow and build strong. So I, mm. beautiful. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Mother's milk. The, um, you know, one of the incredible pieces in that ecosystem that you just described, Nicola, is the microbiome. You know, this this collection of microbes that lives in our belly and throughout our being that we're just just now beginning to really fully understand the implications of it. That we live in this micro, uh, you know, dominant world, this this microsphere, and um, and it's you know like this through line through this conversation is this kind of this self-similar patterns that that show up at different scales um, or what you could call fractal Um, and so there's a microbiome in the soil that's doing a very similar thing to the microbiome in our bellies and I don't know how many people know this really almost magic that happens in the soil when sugars come down you know through the incredible complexities of photosynthesis we are able plants living life here on earth is able to take sunshine and air and turn it into sugar and then those sugars go through the roots and they communicate in ways that we really don't quite grok yet to all of the different microorganisms in the soil and they tell the sugars tell this the those microbes what the plant needs those microorganisms go out and it and bring it back in return for sugar and that is how life is made and that's if that's what we're eating the you know consequences of all the time and that kind of living alive soil is so different than the industrial agriculture way of looking at how we grow things which is just you know npk fertilizer you know very reductionist just looking at the at the kind of main components um and so i'm just thrilled to learn more about the the micro world and curious if other people have stories uh stories about it and how it also has that base state of regeneration i i love that amanda Lynn Margulis, that's all I can say. She, she the microcosmos and, and what we learn about mycorrhiza and the microbial world and how soil health and, and, and those things are great places to look at that and how that strong connection of those, those are our, those are our ancestors basically who arrived on the scene at the birth of our earth well before us and helped us to emerge out of that primordial soup and how much um, just in 2015 we discovered a whole new branch of the bacteria tree of life and the crazy thing is is the discovery it's that branch of the bacteria tree of life is was found in our guts and, and in our soil that were connected that it's the same one and the same. And that, you know, when we go, I go back to what I said earlier, our microcosmos around us is, is a good indicator of our human biome, our natural microcosmos in our body and our gut health. Uh, so I, I, I love that. That's a, it's a beautiful journey. You know, one handful of dirt, they set it in, in, um, kiss the ground has more microbes than there are humans on earth in one and all of the humans who have ever yeah. lived on earth yes exactly wow. imagine 
And I was brought up to think that ground was yucky. That if my fruit looked a little bit beat up, that if it had a little bit of soil, it wasn't worth picking. And it's funny, we've also been conditioned to look for the wrong things, the the wrong things in the food. Lovely packaging, lovely packaging before really checking the contents. I wonder, I wonder when this kind of like organic consciousness, people looking at their food, will start to permeate into other fields of culture, like, you know, like music, like architecture, where people will actually start questioning what is behind the food. Because guys, I mean, I have to admit, when it comes to food, I think of all, all, the, cultural, all the cultural expressions, you guys have come the furthest. How do you feel? How do you feel about the state of the food of food culture and systems leading the way and pivoting humanity in the right direction. How do you feel about that? I feel like it's cause for a celebration. In fact, we're throwing a celebration next week at Miami Art Week, Art Basel, uh, and online called the Regenaissance, celebrating all of these different themes with uh, the artists that we've collected and built into community at the Design Science Studio and Buckminster Fuller Institute. Many of you here are involved. Uh, so if you want to learn more, just go to the little bit.ly link. It's bit.ly slash regen art. bit.ly slash regen art. And join us next week, virtually or in person in Miami. I'm going to Miami, my love. I'm going to Miami to see you too and see all the all the regenerative, all the regenerative hippies over there trying to show regenerative art. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna pull a Tony Montana, you know. <laughs> I, I I think the regener uh, the Renaissance, the regenerance, um, how Amanda said it is fabulous. The question for cultural evolution or this cultural shift and change is really evolution for humanity takes millions, hundreds of thousands to billions of years. But if we can come together collectively, culturally, and align in regeneration, in festivals, in celebration of life and of food and of soils and connect back with nature. It's one of the, another ecological phenomenon like symbiosis that really is one that not only provides critical mass, but it provides the the fastest way to put our foot on this uh, and I hate to use the word exponential, but on this exponential path towards regenerative futures, to to better futures, um, to ones where we align and work collectively, collaboratively in symbiosis. And with with these terms of uh, what we've discussed today, it's the fastest way that humanity can get on the right side of history. It's the fastest way for us not to repeat what all those other civilizations that are no longer here missed out on somehow hmm. and led to collapse. So I, I think it's a, it, it's a phenomenon that is uh, it's not very uh, well spoken of or spoken of enough how much that cultural power and collectiveness can really catapult humanity in a much different place and the power behind it. For sure. And who thought, whoever knew that it could be as easy as putting something delicious in your mouth and really, you know, performing the ultimate litmus test, as Charles Michel said, you know, really, really to feel it, to really know what food you're being kissed by, you need to ask yourself a series of really, you know, critical questions. And if you go down that rabbit hole, I at least have found that eating becomes a much more pleasant experience. Who's going to agree with me? Who's going to agree with me? All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to also jump on what Mark said, something and I want to take us back to that primordial soup and the origin of life. There is a hypothesis that the first life forms were actually in this, you know, chemical substance soup 
um, and you know, struck by lightning and uh, and all kinds of you know powerful geological forces. At some point, a cell or some kind of complex molecule before the cell started sensing its environment with chemical kind of reactions, right? And sensing its environment, meaning to uh, you know capture energy that was swimming in this pool, in this primordial primordial soup, and there is one sensing mechanism that many, if not all, life forms have chemical sensing mechanisms, and our own as humans is taste. Taste is a mechan is a is a is a chemical sensing, or our tongues are uh, chemical sensing uh, organs, just like our 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 kind of olfactory bulb, right, uh, informing smell. So if the origin of life and the first instance of consciousness on this planet is actually taste, what does it mean about the importance of food in our lives? And yes, about, you know, bringing that back into, uh, into really understanding and eventually, as Mark said, kind of, you know, doing what eventually previous generations were not able to to, to, to realize in terms of, um, you know, combining, um, yeah, combining all, all we know and all we sense and the intuition and the rational mind in order to create a planet of abundance for all and everyone. So beautifully said. So beautifully said. So beautifully said. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Reinco Radio live on KPCR FM 101.9 in Santa Cruz, California. You have also been listening to us here on uh, Reinco, the Reinco Room, and uh, you might be listening to us live on Instagram. And please know that we gather here every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific to exchange regenerative ideas, inspiring ideas, and to get a little bit creative with them, to jam a little bit, to sing along, but mostly to feel that we are tuning, we're tuning in with a, with a large group of humanity. I mean, I love the idea that we're actually broadcasting and we're reaching hearts and souls with the beautiful offerings of knowledge, of wisdom and insight you lovely people have brought to the room. So can I get an mm-mm-mm for Charles Michel? Can I get an mm-mm-mm for Nikki? Can I get an mm-mm-mm for Mr. Mark Buckley? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Can we get an mm-mm-mm for Amanda Joy Ravenhill? Who let the cat loose? Who let the cat loose? <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, we have another minute and 40 seconds in this transmission. Would you like to do some toning with the mm-mm-mms for the next 40 minutes? Trust me, it will be fun. Charles, I want to hear you too. Where's your... So lovely. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. I am super excited and I have to admit that I'm hungry too. And who would have thought the revolution would come from me and you? Changing the way that we eat food, the way that we break bread. I believe that this is something essential we need to address if we are to change the course of humanity. 
I digress. Or do you agree, speakers? Do you agree? I you agree. agree. Um, to progress. Uh, to progress. Aho. Ladies and gentlemen, it was an absolute pleasure. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you next week here on Re and Co Radio. What a brilliant transmission! That was fucking amazing! <laughs>